Well, it's good to be here today after the busy holiday season. Hope everyone is doing well. Uh, hope you enjoyed yourself. Uh, thank you for that, Pat. Randy, that was nice. Appreciate that. Uh, hope you all enjoyed yourself this Christmas season. It is. It was really a good time, I think, to be in uh, our Advent series that we did. Um, but you know me. I am very thankful to be back in one book, uh, working our way uh, again, progressing through the book of Luke. Um, so this week we come to Luke chapter 15 as we come back to our series, making our way through Luke. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1 today. Um, I've entitled this sermon, The Shepherd's Joy. If you have read our text today, uh, or once we read it, I think you'll see clearly why I've titled it this. Um, uh, because we read in this text about what it is that brings joy to God. What brings God joy? That is a great question, right? The question of what is it that God delights in? From what does God derive joy? These are big questions. These are philosophy-sized questions that, that we're asking here today. And they're questions that are important for us. I think so oftentimes uh, we tend to view God as this sort of emotionless um, being that, that cares very little for anything, uh, has little to no emotions, is just the one who rules everything and controls everything. Um, we view him almost uh, in terms of a thing rather than even a person when we do this. Either that or sometimes even worse, we view him only in light of his wrath or his vengeance, especially when we think about the first person of the Trinity, when we think of God the Father. And yet in our passage today, we are indeed going to seek to answer the question, what is it that God delights in? What brings joy to God up in heaven? And so as we begin today, we're going to start with our text, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for our text today and ask that as we study this uh, passage, Lord, that you would open our, uh, our eyes to see the truth that you have revealed to us. Lord, I pray that you would be faithful to us, Lord, in the, the learning, the understanding of this text. And I pray today, Lord, that uh, you would use this time to instruct us, to teach us, to challenge us, uh, to convict us of our sin, uh, and ultimately, Lord, to bring glory to you as your church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our main idea for today is this. The Lord takes great pleasure in the electing and redeeming of sinners for the sake of the glory of his name. The Lord takes great pleasure in the electing and redeeming of sinners for the sake of the glory of his name. 
as we begin today, we, we are studying today a parable of Jesus, a parable that is fairly well known, but one that still requires us to take a closer look to understand what it is that Jesus is teaching, why he's giving this parable, why he's delivering this. Because it's very easy for us to, to take a parable, as many have done, uh, and rip it from its context and use it in all kinds of ways that, that Jesus never intended for it to be used for, right? Uh, parables can oftentimes be taken and misused because they've been ripped from their context, ripped from uh, even the surrounding passages in Scripture so that we miss the real meaning of what it is that these parables have to say. So that's where we're going to start today by looking at the context of exactly the situation that Jesus finds himself in as he presents this parable, which is my first point, the context. This starts out in verse 1 of our passage, which says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. This very first verse to me is a fascinating verse, an interesting verse, a verse that begs the question of, why is this so? Why is it that the tax collectors and the sinners are drawing near to Jesus? Am I clicking? No? Okay. Good. Uh, why is this? Why are they drawing near to Jesus? These are people that are, are kind of the scum of the earth in Jewish society. People that, uh, that are wretched sinners. And yet, they find themselves drawing near to Jesus Christ. And you have to ask the question of why. It's not that Jesus was especially soft on sin, right? We see all throughout the life of Jesus that he takes no uh, light stance on, on sin or when it comes to sinful things or wickedness. No, instead, he's, he really pulls no punches when he speaks to, uh, to all of those who he talks to, whether it's the Pharisees or the tax collectors and sinners. He calls sin what it is. He, he denounces it. He rebukes it. He says, even I did not come to bring peace, but division. I came to bring a sword, right? Jesus' message is not one that is somehow coddling to those people who struggle with sin or, or who are uh, particularly wicked in their actions or deeds, but rather he speaks directly in opposition to sin and to sinfulness and to engaging in and participating in sinful things. And yet, these people who were rightly judged as being guilty of sin are drawing nearer and nearer to Jesus. These are the people that find themselves most attracted to Jesus and his message. The message of Jesus, even as we see from our story today, stood in contrast to the message that these tax collectors and sinners were receiving from the scribes and the Pharisees right? It stood in stark contrast. In short, the reason that these tax collectors and sinners found themselves drawn to Jesus Christ was because the message that he was teaching offered hope. A hope that these people could find nowhere else. A hope that they did not find in the teaching of the Pharisees, of the scribes, of the religious leaders of the day. It's something they did not find there but only found in Christ. Because these people knew full well who they are. They knew full well that according to the Pharisees, they were beyond help, right? They were under no misunderstanding of how they were viewed by the Pharisees. They were, in fact, despised by Jewish elites. 
especially these tax collectors that are spoken of here. I've talked before in previous messages about uh, exactly what, it, what caused tax, elector, tax collectors to be so hated by the Jews, uh, but I won't get into all of that right now, but it's suffice to say that to, in order to understand why it was that tax collectors were so hated, so despised by the Jews, is you basically uh, imagine a traitor, a thief, and a liar all rolled up into one, and that is a tax collector, right? They were viewed as traitors to their people, as swindlers and thieves, and as liars. Because many times, that's what they were guilty of. That's how they made their money. That's how they got rich, was by engaging in these types of things. And yet, these people, tax collectors and sinners, were the ones who were drawing near to Jesus, who were finding hope in the message that he offered. A hope that they did not find in the message of the Pharisees or the scribes, but there they found only condemnation. And yet this drawing of these sinners and these tax collectors is what prompts the grumbling in verse 2, what leads to the grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes. We read in verse 2, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, I would like to stop here and just start by by saying in this section, that's good news to us right there, isn't it? That Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. He receives sinners and eats with them. That right there could be the sermon in and of itself. This is not an incorrect assessment of the Pharisees, that Jesus is eating with sinners. No, indeed, he is. He is receiving them and eating with them, and for that, we... Sinners here today say, praise God, right? Amen for this assessment that these Pharisees and scribes make of Jesus. And they were indeed appalled. They were appalled in their minds and in the culture of the day to dine with someone, to eat with someone, to invite them to share a meal with you was to show them great honor, was to show them respect, was to raise them up and say, I want to honor you and validate you and give you a a, a special place at my table. And that's what they saw Jesus doing with these people who they despised. The worst of the worst. The sinners. The tax collectors. This word uh, sinners here is not to say that tax collectors were, were not sinners. But this word is often used to kind of lump together those people who, who didn't engage in Jewish, social, Jewish religious customs, who were not going to the synagogue like they should, not making the sacrifices they should, or even worse, people who were engaging or even making a living off of abhorrent behavior, such as prostitutes or others. And here's Jesus showing them honor in their mind by dining with them, by eating with them, And in the process, shaming himself. No good, self-respecting Jew would dine with these people or eat with these people. And yet this is what prompts the story that Jesus gives. Again, we see the Pharisees have no category for interacting with this kind of people. No category for it. They see Jesus eating with these people and it is so foreign to them. They would never lower themselves 
to do something like this. Which prompts Jesus' parable in verses 3 through 6, the story here. Let's read the story one more time. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And again here, as we, as we look at this parable that Jesus delivers, we have to be careful that we not overdo it with this parable, right? This is another thing about parables, is that it's easy for people to take a parable and try and allegorize every aspect of the parable, right? To where every single little thing means something. And there's a danger in doing that because you can take a story that Jesus is using to prove or, or to make a specific point and try and use it to make all kinds of points that he had no intention of ever speaking to. And you can really do a lot of damage as you try and understand parables or teach parables when you do this. But simply by understanding the context of the story, it can help us to, to more safely extrapolate from the story uh, what Jesus would have us to see. First of all, we see Jesus is, is speaking with prideful and unrepentant Pharisees, right? All of the last chapter and then into this chapter, Jesus' Jesus's primary speaking, his primary interaction is with the Pharisees. These people who were prideful, who are unrepentant, who view themselves as above other people, above these sinners, these tax collectors. It therefore makes sense that Jesus would speak in this parable and would tell this parable dealing particularly with the issue of repentance. Not to mention the fact that, that when the Pharisees heard this story, they would no likely have, they would most likely have identified the sheep that was lost, the one wandering off, the one who was not with the flock, as these people who were far from God, right? They looked at these tax collectors, these sinners, in that way. Oh, who is it that's wandered away? Oh, it's definitely those people, right? They clearly identify themselves in that way and would have undisputably identified themselves as those who remained with the flock, the faithful, right? They would no doubt have identified this. And notice as well that Christ, as we have seen, makes a habit of seeking out and receiving these sinners and offering them hope to which they have responded. This parable isn't the most complicated thing that the Lord has ever told, not the most uh, intricate parable. The themes are fairly straightforward, fairly easy to understand, simple language, relatable. Yet this parable contains within it some of the most profound statements on the mission and work of Jesus Christ. That he is, in fact, the good shepherd who rescues lost sheep. In its simplest form, in its most base reading, we can understand this and see the beauty of this. That Jesus is the good shepherd in this story. Jesus is the one who is seeking out this sheep that has gone astray. He is the good and faithful shepherd who seeks out 
the lost sheep. This is why he came down to this earth. This is why we celebrated Christmas. Because Jesus came down to this earth, as Luke 19.10 says, that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the ultimate statement on why Christ came to this earth. The ultimate statement on what it is that Jesus has come to accomplish. He has come indeed to seek and save the lost. And we need not lose sight of this. It is dangerous for us to lose sight of this. God is a wrathful God. Yes. But far too many people engage in this act of destroying the Trinity, ripping it apart by seeing God the Father as wrathful, vengeful, angry, and yet ignoring what it is that Christ came to this earth to do. Failing to understand that God, the triune God, is not just a God of wrath, but is a God who came down to this earth on mission. Why? To seek and save the lost. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 3, we, we know John three sixteen, right? It's one of the most famous verses ever. And then right after that, what does he say? For Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but why? So that the world through him might be saved. Don't think that God is just loving the idea of pouring his wrath out upon people. God's wrath is not what brings him joy. He does not relish the concept of destroying sinful people. How do we know this? Because he sent Christ Jesus, his son, to seek and save the lost. Jesus, God, incarnate, did not come to this earth to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is the God that we serve, a God who seeks and saves the lost. Notice especially that Jesus, the good shepherd, seeks and saves us. In this case, we are the sheep wandering aimlessly, are we not? Unaware of the danger that we find ourselves in. Completely oblivious to the things going on around us. There's a reason that it was a danger for sheep to go off and wander by themselves. If you look up things about shepherding, about sheep, you will hear conflicting uh, opinions on whether or not sheep are smart or dumb. I was kind of curious about, curious about this myself, so I was like, I'm going to look it up. My conclusion was, if you talk to farmers or people who deal with sheep on a regular basis, they say, yeah, they're dumb. But if you talk to scientists or people who study their brains or things like that, they say, oh, no, 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 they're smart. Uh, but I'm going to go and say, like, the people who deal with them on a daily basis probably have an idea of whether or not sheep are really that uh, smart a creature. And here's the thing. Sheep will wander off like this. They will just wander away from, from the flock, from the place where they're finding security and, and food and all of this stuff. Wander off, and they'll find, like, uh, it's not uncommon for a sheep to find, like, a knoll in the ground, a good place to lay down. And they'll lay down in this, like, divot in the ground. And then what can happen is the sheep, because they've got all this fur, will roll over to where their feet come off the ground, and they literally cannot get themselves turned back over. And they will lie there in that position until they die, if they're not found and rescued. I mean, that's sheep, right? That's how they do. And yet, here we are described as sheep. Not just as sheep, but as wandering sheep. So if you think, like, man, those sheep sound kind of dumb, like, that's us, right? We are the dumb sheep, wandering aimlessly, 
oblivious of the danger that we find ourselves in apart from Christ. All those who are apart from Christ are in that state, oblivious of their sin, oblivious of the wrath, the danger that they are facing apart from Christ. What is required? What is required is that a good shepherd go and seek them out and bring them back. Salvation for that sheep is in the hands of that shepherd, no one else. That sheep is oblivious, can do nothing to save himself. It, he requires a good shepherd to take the initiative to come to save him, to put him on his shoulders, to bring him back, and then to celebrate his salvation. Let us not miss this. Let us not miss the joy and the goodness that we see in God's electing of sinners. We as sheep do not deserve God's salvation. We as sheep can do nothing to gain God's salvation. Yet Christ comes to seek us out. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. But as we come back to our specific context in which Jesus is giving this parable, he's speaking and speaking to these Pharisees, these scribes, in an attempt to make a specific point here in this story as he's talking to these people. What is the point he's trying to make? What is the point that he wants to get across to these religious people? He gives us a pretty good idea of what it is in verse 7, which is also point number 4, the point. He says in verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The point that he is trying to make to these Pharisees has to do with what evokes joy in heaven. The joy of God. He says to the Pharisees, you would grumble over the very thing that brings God joy. That's how we opened with these Pharisees in this passage. They were grumbling because Jesus, the good shepherd, was seeking and saving lost sheep. There they were grumbling. And Jesus says, this very thing that you are grumbling over is what brings God, the one you claim to love and serve, what brings him joy. And there is an important point to be made in that alone. That if we do not find joy in the things that bring God joy, we should be concerned of ourselves. We should be concerned as these Pharisees were completely oblivious to the thing that brings God joy. In fact, they grumbled and complained about it. Also included in the conclusion of this parable is a strong indictment of the Pharisees' condition themselves. We see at the end, he says, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let me ask you this. Who are righteous people that do not need to repent? There are none, right? There's no such thing as, as a righteous person who does not need to repent. They don't exist. And yet, this is the category that the Pharisees found themselves in. Thinking themselves righteous, obedient to God, doers of the law, 
We don't need to repent. We are not like these people. We are not lost sheep. We are a part of the 99 sheep who never left. We're good. Jesus makes clear to them that those people are in bad shape. It is a strong indictment. There is no such thing as a righteous person who needs no repentance. There is only people who think themselves righteous who fail to see their need of repentance. The same gospel that Jesus proclaimed to the tax collectors and sinners that was changing their lives fell on deaf ears and hard hearts with the Pharisees. Unless we think, it would be very easy for us to think, man, these Pharisees always have it hard. Jesus is always so mean to these Pharisees. But just think in our previous chapter, what was Jesus doing? He told the story of the wedding feast. He said, humble yourselves. When you come to a wedding feast, don't take the place of the highest honor, but take the humble place, the place of low honor, so that the Lord may exalt you. He was saying this to the Pharisees. He was eating at a Pharisee's house, telling them, warning them, admonishing them, humble yourselves. You must humble yourselves before the Lord. He told them, these Pharisees, he was giving them a chance. When you throw a feast, he says in chapter 14, invite people who can't repay you. Invite the lowly, the downtrodden. Do like Jesus did. And what was their response? Scoffing. Grumbling. When they see Jesus doing the very thing he's telling them to do, they grumble. To think that these Pharisees had it rough would be to misunderstand all of this. Jesus warned the Pharisees. He spoke gently to the Pharisees before he condemned them. Even in the parable we're going to uh, teach in a couple weeks, the parable, parable of the prodigal son, right? What does the father do in that story after his son has returned and they celebrate? He goes out to the older son who is refusing to join the party and admonishes him, please come in, join the party, celebrate with us. Your brother was lost, now he is found. But the older brother meets him only with contempt. He doesn't go out to the older brother with a swift rebuke, kick in the pants, probably what we would do. That's not what he does, but he meets him with a tender word. Jesus has met these Pharisees with a tender word with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for them, who count themselves righteous and no need of repentance, it fell on hard hearts and deaf ears. Therefore, their condemnation is sure. We see it over and over again in Scripture, the condemnation of those who count themselves as righteous and do not need to repent. In his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, John MacArthur, in his chapter on this topic, says this, the gospel is good news only to those who perceive themselves as sinners. The unequivocal teaching of Jesus is that those who will not acknowledge and repent of their sin are beyond the reach of saving grace. All are sinners, but not all are willing to admit their depravity. If they do, he becomes their friend. Those who will not can know him only as a judge. These Pharisees and those of us here today who refuse to repent of our sin, who are unable to see our condition, our depravity, will know Jesus Christ only as judge, not as friend. 
What these Pharisees and scribes have done is that they have rejected Jesus and clung to Moses. They have rejected the gospel that Jesus Christ has to offer, forgiveness of sins, release from your burden, and they have clung to the law, and they will be judged accordingly. Not according to what Christ has done in them, but because they clung to the law, they will be judged according to that, and they will fall short. Because what do we read in Romans 3? There is none that is righteous, no, not one. And yet those, especially those tax collectors, those sinners, who recognize their depravity, right, find in Jesus Christ a friend, a savior. They find hope, hope that the Pharisees cannot offer, hope that the Pharisees do not offer, hope that is found only in Christ. As we conclude today, I have just a few closing observations. This parable describes two kinds of people. One who has been sought and rescued by Christ and repented of their sin, and one who stands hard-hearted, refusing to repent. Those are the two options, right? There are no others. There is no one who is truly righteous and not in need of repentance. There are only those who stand hard-hearted, and unwilling to repent. Or those who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, who see the hope that is made available to them and who repent of their sin, who turn from their sin. One way of saying this is that they choose sides, right? They no longer are on the side of their sin, but they, are, they have rejected their sin and now oppose their sin, stand in opposition to it, and are on the side of Christ, of goodness, of righteousness, and pursuing him. Those are the only two options available. Only in Christ Jesus and the message that he offers. The good shepherd. Can we have hope? Also, those of us who are united with Christ, whom he has sought and saved, thou rest on the unshakable shoulders of the great shepherd. This is another beautiful truth of this passage. That the shepherd, when he finds this sheep, puts it on his shoulders carries it all the way home, right? For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, you are safe on the arms, the shoulders of the good shepherd. And then finally, as Christians, we should indeed find joy in the same thing that, that brings joy to the Father. The very thing that brings joy to God should bring joy to us. God's joy should be the source of our joy. So the question that we ought to ask ourselves today is, do I find joy in what brings joy to the Father? Namely, in our story today, our parable, what brings joy to God the Father? The message of Jesus Christ, repenting of sinners. That is what brings joy to God. So does that bring joy to us? Do we desire to see sinners repent of their sin and come to know Jesus Christ, the good shepherd? Do we desire to see them sought and saved? And if so, what are we doing about it? We should chase that feeling, should we not? The sense of joy and rejoicing that is, is felt in heaven should be ours. 
in both the saving of other sinners, but also in our salvation. Too many times, even our salvation, our being sought and saved, doesn't bring us the joy that it should. And we should be concerned about that. We should feel the joy of our salvation and in turn the joy of the seeking and saving of the lost. And it should impact how our church looks, how we interact with those around us, even how we interact with our very own families. The joy of God should be our joy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. It is always glorious and insightful and amazing to see you describing what it is that you desire, what it is that brings you joy, what it is that you take pleasure in. And to know, Lord, that we have a part in that. Not in the saving of ourselves, but in the rejoicing of the salvation of sinners. To take part in the joy that you have brought about through Jesus Christ. I pray today, Lord, that you would renew in us the joy of our salvation. That when we think about what it is that has been done in our lives, how you, by your sovereign working, have sought us out and saved us from our sin, rescued us from sure destruction. Lord, may that bring about in us a joy that we cannot contain, but that flows over. Lord, I pray that that joy would also lead us to partake, participate in the mission that you have given to us. To go into all nations, declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, it is the only news that has hope. It is the news that we can take even to the wretchedest of sinners, confronting their sin directly and yet offering them hope at the same time. This is the only news that can do that. No other story has ever been told. No other religion has ever come about that has offered such a direct contradiction to the ways of the world and yet such a great hope. I pray today, Lord, that we would rejoice in that and rejoice in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.